Hola mi gente, this is episode 6 and we're talking about Grito Latino and Sonic Escrache. But really the conversation is centered on ideas of justice, social reconciliation, and performance studies. At the end of the day, when you think about the wars, uh, the dirty wars, I don't know what war is clean, but of the Southern Cone, you have to ask, how do these communities that have survived, endured such atrocities, confront the shattering experiences of these crimes and acts of violence that haven't been tried? There's so much impunity in our community and throughout the world that it's hard to think about justice because you can't have it without truth and you can't reconcile if you don't have a means to account for these atrocities, to be validated, to be heard, these acts of violence, these interracial war, state-sponsored violence, this does a number on how not only you see yourself, but in relation to how do you see your nation? How does nationalism get impacted by these crimes against humanity? How do you stop the violence? How do these warring factions create a common ground where they're not motivated by revenge? How do you get help from the outside to break these cycles of violence? And what role do the international community play, right? Because let us not forget, in the case, let's say, of Argentina during the World Cup that was being hosted by the country, they were also disappearing right under the stadium. They had clandestine jails and torture centers. They were disappearing young people. So then how do you think about the culprits of this violence? And do they need to be isolated and brought to justice? And what does justice mean in this context? Well, I have a few terms that I think are worth considering. One, restorative justice. This has been a buzzword as of late when we think about uh, reintegration or reconciliation after people have been incarcerated. But restorative justice has been applied also on a greater scale when you think about truth and justice commissions in places not only like Argentina, but they have been in Colombia, Guatemala, uh, South Africa, right, to kind of reconcile the atrocities of apartheid. But restorative justice is a process that brings together victims, offenders, and the community in order to repair the harm and promote harmony. It emphasizes healing the harm caused by a crime by means of naming the truth and making amends personally. And so for the offenders, they're encouraged to take responsibility, to be accountable for the harmful behaviors in a meaningful way to gain insight into the causes and effects of that behavior on others, to change that behavior, to then be accepted back into the community with a purpose, right? With a contribution. Now, then you think about for the victim, the process gives the victim a forum to ask questions, to receive answers, to gain understanding, to explain the impact of the crime on them and contribute to the outcome of the process. The victim can thereby receive an apology, restitution, reparation, services, and in a way find closure. Now, for the community, the offense is not a private act. But an offense against the community, reconciliation and restitution are the responsibility then of the victim, offender, and community. So together, it requires healing between them, between the victim and offender, restoration of the victim to a state of peace, rehabilitation of the offender, and restoration of unity in the community. Restorative justice has its roots in many of the religions of the world. It is a spiritual process focusing on repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. In places even like Canada, for example, First Nation people have the practice of healing circles. And so it's the idea that we can't just think about retributive justice and move toward more so restorative justice, understanding also that it is important to heal self, community, and to also reconcile then the role of the offender. Now, this makes a lot of sense to us on the personal level, right? 
Think about it when you've been wronged by someone and you sometimes really need to forgive them, not for them or because they're worthy of it, but sometimes so then you can move on, right? Forgiveness really is for the person who forgives, but there are things that are unforgivable. And that's where I think, you know, there is a disconnect when you try to think of this process uh, as something that can help heal a nation when the nation, the official accounts are not only uh, incorrect, false, whitewashed, edited, but they're the ones that then get to be in the position to serve justice. And if forgiveness is on the table, that implies, in my view, that the things that have been done are forgivable. And how can you reconcile when even the government says that they are no disappeared people, but yet you have over 35,000 young people who no longer are there to hug their families, to speak on these atrocities. In Argentina, in Colombia, in Mexico, in Guatemala, in places where you've had these atrocities, these gross human rights violations occur, you have these truth and reconciliation commissions where the victims present their accounts of what happened in an attempt to restore personal and civil dignity while honoring also the victims. Any reconciliation process must allow victims to speak and be heard. This helps to reclaim dignity of the victims, but also serves to help bring about changes in society through laws and policies. Victims must also have a right to some type of compensation for their losses. But then how do you put a value on lives, on dreams, on memories? For the perpetrators, amnesty was granted in places like Argentina, in Chile, in Brazil, this was controversial, as many feared this would make a mockery also the justice system, which is why in Argentina in particular, there is a great distrust, rightfully so, of the government, of their official accounts. And this is why you have so many unofficial accounts of truth that circulate and become very powerful testimonials that you hear in the music, that you see in the theater, that you watch on television that you feel connected to. And this is all done in the interest of national unity and to provide a way for the perpetrators to enter into the process of reconciliation. All the hearings actually were televised and perpetrators provided detailed accounts of what they did, their background and motives. Their crimes had to be clearly politically motivated. In the case of Argentina, many of the uh, soldiers were emphasizing that that was it. They were soldiers. They followed orders. But at what point can you understand that even an inaction in these times of crisis, in these moments of violence, where it becomes the norm and creates a culture unto itself, you have to act, right? Now, I remember Pope John Paul II, he said, no peace without justice, no justice without forgiveness. But again, some of these crimes are unforgivable. And so I was raised uh, really in a Christian household, if that's what we call it, you know, on paper where you have to forgive. And personally, it was a problematic concept. Because after being abused, you're like, well, why do I have to forgive for that? Well, you don't want to hold on to resentment because resentment percolates on a personal level. It can actually engender self-harming practices, create particular pathologies that emerge as a result of complicated and sometimes toxic family relations. But at the same time, this is what happens when then you assume that individuals will be passive recipients of their oppression on a personal level, right? Using even myself as, you know, an example, an embodied case study of rebellion. But think about it 
for young people who saw a nation basically disappeared, their people, their friends, their families, as Charlie Garcia wrote about in Los Dinosaurios. Now, it's important to understand the context for rebellion, right? And that has a lot to do with divisions, deep ideological disagreements between people who claim that they are the right, perfect citizen, right? So in the case of places like Argentina, Brazil, and Chile during the dirty wars, if you were young, if you were independent of mind, if you had an idea that was against the status quo, then you were branded as subversive, as dangerous. And again, this is something that you see beyond the Southern Cold in real time. I mean, think about even the insurrection of the United States. That came because of a deep alienation from democratic politics. Think of how low voter participation, high levels of cynicism, you know, uh, mass-produced disinformation, all of that leads to a feeling of needing to rebel, to shout, to hold people accountable. Now, this isn't done always in the best way. But for people who are living through this, they believe it's the only way. And there is a lot of falsehoods attached to this. But think about it in the context of democracy and political legitimacy. Disagreement is an inextricable feature of social and political life. Political systems offer ways of addressing disagreement and shaping the character of the societies in which we live. So democratic communities then seek to address disagreement in ways that are legitimate. But think about all the ways that are deemed illegitimate, right? From reggaeton in Puerto Rico, which was banned and, and, and they tried actually to make it illegal to dance this music. Why? Because they deem their political denunciation, their calls against, you know, the government and, and all this truth that they bring to the surface and into our homes by way of music. Same thing with Rock Nacional. Same thing with New Song in Chile. Um, they're not deemed as legitimate ways to have political discourse, but perhaps they're the most powerful ways because they're able to come into our homes, they live in our minds, they circulate in our hearts, and they create action. The basic idea of a political legitimacy is a political outcome is legitimate even if those who disagree with it have sufficient reason to accept it and abide by it. So think of it, losers of a fair election accept that they have lost, which is Really never the case if you think about it in Latin America. Look at the tensions as of late between Bolsonaro's government and Lula's new government in Brazil. And Lula's new government is actually an old government because he was a former president. So you see this also cycle of repetition. The more things change in Latin America, it seems that the more things stay the same. And there is an acceptance of a law that one thinks is bad, but which is created in a democratic fashion. And that makes it complicated because then who deems it legitimate? Who has the power to do so? The basic idea of political legitimacy is that a political outcome is legitimate, even if those who disagree with it have sufficient reason to accept it and abide by it. So losers of a fair election accept that they have lost. But can you accept that a government is basically attacking its own citizens? Where is your patriotism, right? How do you accept the law that is bad for the people, but because people sometimes vote against their own interests or people commodify their votes? It is not the first time you probably heard that in Latin America, many elections, they're called into question as legitimate because people sell the only thing that they have. So if my vote counts, let it count for something. Let it put literally food on my table. 
Now, legitimacy through democracy is a contentious concept because fair democratic procedures help secure legitimacy. So think of fair electoral systems with universal suffrage, which in Argentina and Chile was problematic because not everyone participates equally because of practicality in the system. Because if I feel like my situation does not change, no matter who is in office, right, then I have to question, is democracy really something that is tangible? Is it democratic for people to live in poverty and to inherit poverty for generations and generations and not because they can't go to school? Yeah, you could go to school. Compulsory education can be free. But if you don't have food in your stomach, if you don't have the most basic things, running water that does not make you sick. If you don't have a roof over your head, learning becomes almost like a bourgeois, you know, luxury. You can't think in the long term when you're so disconnected from systems, right? So legitimacy is not guaranteed by a majority rule with procedurally fair backgrounds. So some rights violations endorsed by democratic majorities are not legitimate look at it in here in the united states it is not legitimate it is not okay to for example ask someone for their papers because they look undocumented which happened in georgia it happened in arizona that's not okay because that is discrimination in fact that is racial discrimination and that is something that emerges in a post 9-11 world as a means to keep us secure as a means to protect us in the name of the nation you see where i'm going now There are different facets of democratic legitimacy. So procedural fairness. Democratic processes for reaching decisions must allow citizens to participate equally in decision-making and should be responsive to the views of citizens. So think about fair systems of representation, equal voting rights. In Argentina, if you've ever seen the film The Night of the Pencils, or the testimonial account, La Noche de los Lapices, where they look at how in Cordoba they had a group of students who were protesting because they wanted to get a bus pass to go to school. And that organizing, that coming together, that helped them advocate for their rights, branded them as dangerous subversive. And that's why they became targets from the government, the, the, the military junta. And it's incredible because this is the future workforce, the future leaders, the future professionals of the nation, and they take them out because they found in their youth a power that was dangerous to the military. Now, basic justice means a legitimate outcomes must be consistent with recognition and respect of basic rights, including the rights of political participation. So the majority cannot legitimately disenfranchise the minority via a vote, but they can make it impossible to vote, right? Think about here all the attacks on the Voting Rights Act of the United States that made it so, for example, uh, black folk in the South can go vote on Sundays. It was a tradition, a ritual that had meaning, but they took that away. They didn't make voting illegal, but they started chipping away at the values and, and rituals that hold great meaning and hold these communities together against the violence, against the disenfranchisement, against the marginalization. Now, justification means legitimate outcomes are ones that all people affected by them have reason to accept, even when they disagree with the outcome. But really, if we think of aggregative conception of legitimacy, what that means, right, versus deliberative democracy, it's an outcome. So a law of public policy is legitimate if it reflects the will of a democratic majority as ascertained via fair democratic procedures. So a majority vote in parliament. And you had places like in Guatemala and El Salvador where you needed to have an international community have oversight 
of the election process as they transitioned into democracy post the dictatorships. So you would have, you know, blue helmets, UN peacekeepers overseeing these elections. And democracy, when it has been denied to you, voting becomes such a powerful, meaningful tool. It becomes performative in that way. I remember when my grandmother on my mother's side was alive. She was a hundred and maybe two. The The numbers are, are a little hazy and I think the archive is a bit unreliable, but definitely over a century old and she voted for the first time and she was already very much advanced in age and had all these health ailments but I remember you know the planning of making sure that she had a taxi that could take her um, and her grandchildren who held her up as she went and delivered her vote exercised her right as a woman, as a citizen of Colombia, who has been also subject to great structural violence as a woman who is indigenous, right? And so the legacy even of colonialism is very much apparent in her every day when she was in Colombia because of the type of disconnect and marginalization that she had as a native woman. But then she was able to see how her children upon marrying, I guess, first generation Colombian, because um, my grandfather's father came from Spain, like that brought her great privileges that she wasn't able to access. And so you start thinking about the way also racism, colorism works, and then how it also challenges legitimacy of justice because if everyone is not treated fairly under the law protected in the same way can we really call it democracy and i think that is a really important point to think about in terms of a basic case for deliberative democracy the mere fact that a group has lost a procedurally fair vote on a matter of importance does not provide them adequate reason to believe that outcome is politically justified. Some considerations that may lie behind the majority role do not seem relevant to public justifications. So think of the private gain of a politician, right? It's not coincidental that if you probably look in the bank accounts of every president in Latin America, it is suspiciously inflated. Now, again, this happened to the current president of Lula with his detention. I mean, he was incarcerated, again, with questionable ethical procedures. Um, but then at the same time, then you have an entire people who question not what he did, but the institution that is holding him accountable. Can they be seen as deliverers of justice? And so healthy politics should be oriented towards persuasion and justification rather than a mere exercise of power because really at the end of the day, truth matters. Truth can be elusive and contested in many domains, including the political one, but it is valuable because at the end of the day, truth is instrumentally valuable because it helps us to negotiate the world successfully. True beliefs about the world facilitate our pursuit of justice, among other things, revealing casual connections about how things work, how vaccines, for example, protect people from diseases, and by revealing facts that are salient, not only to our relationships, but to ourselves, whether a person loves me or not, whether can I love the nation. Now, truth is intrinsically valuable because in some domains we value understanding the way the world is for its own sake. Accessing and appreciating important truths of history or science can enrich our lives, even if the truths are complicated, hurtful. Now, there are five challenges that I think are worth considering about truth in the context of Latin America. We are all as human beings fallible, so that is important as well to think about whether we as individuals or groups often discover that things we thought were true turn out to be false. How do you move forward? How do you look back in order to do that? 
truth on important matters is often elusive and therefore difficult to establish. And it can be controversial, but it is important to strive towards it. It can and must be an objective of the way we even teach education, history, the way we even talk about not only our people, but those that we consider different to us. People disagree not only about what is true, but about the proper methods to be used in seeking the truth. For me, as an artist, I'm someone who is constantly in pursuit of it in my work. Whether it is clear to me, whether I understand it, whether I have gotten to what I believe is true, it is the process that keeps me creating. It is the pursuit of truth that keeps me closer to a pursuit of happiness. So the disagreement of what truth is is often a source of division between us. I mean, it is the source of every conflict I have had with my family because we have differing versions of truth, right? But there are demands that have to be made when one is seeking truth. One basic rationality, a commitment to reason, consideration of evidence and logic in the formation of beliefs. One has to be humble. Because a degree of intellectual humility in which we recognize the possibility that some of our beliefs, even the ones we hold true and our convictions, they could be wrong. They could be false. You could have been lied to. You could have been wanting to ignore it. There has to be receptivity, a willingness to revise our beliefs in light of the best evidence we have. Open-mindedness, a willingness to entertain views of people who in good faith or even bad faith disagree with us. We have to avoid those echo chambers because at the end of the day on the internet or whether it is in our legislative halls, we only sometimes listen to the people that say the things we already believe. And that's not progress. That's status quo. And so justification is a commitment to coherent justifications of the beliefs we hold. But it has to make sense and it has to be seen as integral to democracy, truth, facts. We hope that democratic politics generate genuinely good or bad or right or wrong outcomes. Ones that make the community, though, healthier, whether it is because you learn from the lessons or wealthier because you're able to harness and benefit and reap the benefits of economic and social development and opportunity. Communities have to be safer and sometimes truth allows us to do that because if we could recognize that the danger can come from the very people who are tasked with serving and protecting the police the military, as it happened in these places and continues to happen today, then we have to be also be willing to sustain the truth and to continue moving towards justice. Democratic deliberation is or should be truth-oriented. We should aim at justifying our views in democratic debates that reflect this sensitivity to truth by providing compelling evidence for our views, by revising our views in light of new evidence. We should favor institutional arrangements and social practices that facilitate meaningful exchanges of reasons between citizens and their political representatives. Regrettably, political actors in the pursuit of power often have been sentenced to issue the democratic concern for truth. And for me, this is why I lean into art. Because if you are an artist or if you've come to appreciate its value, you know that it's about mirroring. It's about offering windows. It's about change. It's about expression. It's about truth. Even the hard ones. So there are four threats to truth-oriented democratic discourse, and it's important to keep these on the forefront. Mendacity. So this is perhaps the most obvious threat, as it is lying by participants in the political arena, especially those with power and influence, politicians, the media. 
liars typically know what is true or at least know that what they're claiming is false i mean we saw what was recently leaked in the text messages of false fox news pundits right when they were like well giuliani is insane i believe that is a quote verbatim but it definitely uh showed that they were lying on camera about what they believed and amongst each other they were honest in saying that they did not believe that these elections were uh, false or that they were rigged but it is advantageous to keep people believing that narrative same thing happens in places where you have a post-dictatorial society where people are constantly striving to find out the truth because they've been lied to to the degree that their whole reality is called into question and so it is important for us to think about the role of bullshit the philosopher harry frankfurt distinguishes bullshitting from lying whereas the liar is concerned with truth but seeks to hide or distort it the bullshitter makes utterances that are intended to influence people without any regard to the truth bullshit is performance bullshit is detached from a concern with truth it aims only on getting people to disagree or to agree with the bullshitter it's discourse that masquerades as aiming a justification but is it different to truth so you know a lot of these people like videla in argentina he was a military man a politician but a quintessential liar and bullshitter number three trivia overload there are some forms of discourse that are sensitive to truth but distract us from a reflective consideration of important matters this is why in all my courses i am constantly asking for reflections because that process of reflective consideration is imperative a great deal of contemporary media is dominated by exchanges of trivia about relatively unimportant things for example i could care less what xyz was wearing but if it gives me insight into her values then i'm reading you know the fashion a little bit differently or you know, i think about people who show up and who is absent at these mobilizations at these events at these performances and this is really about the personalization of truth when people disagree about significant matters and when resolution of disagreement seems difficult or contentious there is a tendency for people to address the disagreement by declaring that their own truth is the truth so this whole phenomena of alternative facts right of semantics in this way truth becomes personalized having one's own truth may be a way of avoiding an argument with someone with whom you disagree with but it's no way to establish that what you believe is actually true and this is why in places like argentina and chile in all these places where you have a, a need to reconcile with the past because of the atrocities of the state it's hard to then reconcile this government's official account as truth and your own which may be diametrically opposed and so we should avoid complacency about our current institutions and institutions and practices and this is why popular culture becomes a vehicle a means a tool to denounce to make sense to create an alternative discourse that perhaps is the one that speaks for the people the loudest the most effective the most action oriented the one that is most representative of their wants of their dreams now strong media organizations dominate or control interests competing interests but this is the role of art to push back against it to provide a meaningful time and opportunity for deliberation to think about our civic virtues through the lens of those who have been silenced from political discourse who have been made to feel as if their ideas and dreams and wants for the nation don't matter and yet those are the ones that lead us towards progress towards democracy towards justice <laughs> 
When one thinks about justice in Latin America, the lens of performance studies is really productive because it focuses on the pervasiveness of performance as a central element of social and cultural life, including not only theater and dance, but also such forms of sacred rituals. For me, in my work, it was soccer. That is how I understood and explored Argentina's people, places, culture, politics, sense of self and health. It was through soccer because basically it's one of its most sacred rituals and practices of everyday life. It is where you're able to understand Argentine storytelling. I looked at public speaking, avant-garde performance art as well as popular entertainments, micro-constructions of ethnicity, race, class, sex, and gender, world fairs and shows, drag performances, everything was everything. And so potentially any instance of expressive behavior or culture enactment gave me a fuller picture. So if you've ever, well, you're probably, if you're listening to this, are not of this generation, but growing up, we used to have, well, I mean, I've seen those adult coloring books, but it was like color by numbers, right? And the way I think about ethnographic research or any type of fieldwork experience is that the more I immerse myself, the more I understand the culture, the more numbers I'm painting in to get a fuller picture, a vivid one that can speak to me, can be in conversation with me, where I am able to understand the social dramas that take place. Now, if I look at the crucial texts that are connected to performance studies. We could think about Victor Turner's, right? Schism and Continuity in an African Society for One or Goffman's Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. But basically what they're looking at is analyzing the motives behind phenomena ranging from communicative actions to the history of philosophy. Turner himself developed the theory of social drama to understand ritual processes in resolving conflicts and crises in agrarian African communities. But his idea was very much fruitful when I was understanding or engaging with a very complicated history that I was part of, right? So in Argentina, we talk a lot about memoria viva. It's like our memories are alive. History is in real time. It's cyclical because we repeat it over and over again. And arguably, this has a lot to do with the absence of truth, right? So Goffman likewise proposed a, a, a different approach, but very much interconnected for studying how people negotiate everyday interactions through carefully managed social performances. But really, at the same moment, visual artists and dancers were also thinking about how the image of the detached artist or choreographer and the disembodied work of art to focus on the creative body, the artist's body as the work of art became a more spontaneous, corporeal, fully present way to understand these communities. Because then when we think about the ways not only that artists, people who identify as artists, create and contribute to these cultures, but how the culture in itself is artistic, is performative. It's showing us the happenings, the events that create meaning and truth for people. Now, in addition to this convergence of research interests and methods that we're talking about, the social upheavals of the 1960s and the 1970s in this case, particularly the dirty wars, these civil rights protests, these anti-war demonstrations, women's liberation marches, thinking of the mothers of La Plaza de Mayo, Watergate, what was happening here, this all seemed to underscore the transformative potential of social interaction, and it helped to contribute to the emergence of performance studies as a research paradigm. And so celebrating the efficacy of cultural performances, scholars tended to privilege forms that in some way resisted or were outside the mainstream Western culture traditions. So forms such as experimental, regional, and political theater, performance art, 
street demonstrations. So in this case, I think of Escaraches in Argentina, where you have the children of the disappeared who congregate and hold accountable the very people that the justice system have let go and have not held accountable. So they'll stand in front of their apartment building and just go with drums and start pounding away and calling them rapists, murderers, telling them their truth. And it, they scream it into the streets because as much as you may want to ignore it, you can't. So the early performance studies research scholars valued crucial components of performance, embodiment, presence, and transgression. And I think in many ways, this created a groundwork for understanding even our own history in Latin America, because usually it was given to us in a very whitewashed, sanitized, vertical um, way where the voices that perhaps spoke to us were silenced, muted. Their bodies were disappeared. And so I think for us, as we think about performance studies in places where there is a need for truth and justice, then it gives us a different way to recognize not only rituals that often play out in ways that unless you're fully in conversation and immersed in the culture, you won't understand. Like for me, I'm someone who identifies as, you know, a former Christian, I guess. Well, I don't even know what that means because when I think of religion for me, I think of soccer. Now, it's a cultural performance, but it gives me meaning. It congregates, certainly, my family. It keeps us looking at rituals, new ones that we create, ones that we share with other community members. It allows us also to distill our dreams and hopes, not only for ourselves as winners or champions, but as members of citizens of a country, of a place that gives us belonging, that allows us to have community. And this is why when we think about the relationship of local performance tradition and intellectual interests, I just think that if we look at the world with the lens of an artist, we'll be able to appreciate it. You don't have to be an artist. But the lens that an artist has and really creates with is one that is in search of truth because that's what our art does, does justice to it and to ourselves. (laughs) 